Hi and welcome to Antropod. Today's episode is produced by Stine Kroyer and Astrid Oberbobek Andersen and edited by Cecil Marie Henriksen and myself and I am Katrine Wintour. What you hear playing in the background is a dandelion, recorded and mediated to you through an interactive machine which tapes the sound of living plants. The recording was made in an eco-village in northern Italy where they use this machine to interact with the plants. The story of this dandelion recording is just one of many ethnographic case studies we will learn about in today's episode. We will discuss an upcoming theme in current anthropology based on a workshop held in 2016 on the anthropology department at Copenhagen University. The workshop was titled More Than Human Politics and was organized by assistant professor Stine Kroyer and postdoc Estel Oberbobek Andersen, both employed at the department. The workshop is inspired by Professor Mai Solde Lakadena's monograph Earth Beings, Ecologies of Practice Across Andean Worlds. For those of you not familiar with the book, it takes it at a graphic point of departure in an archive that Mai Solde got access to. The archive, a box of documents, was created and owned by Mariano Turbo, a runacuna or Quechua peasant leader in Cusco, Peru. The book is the result of continuous conversations between Maisol and Mariano and also his son Nazario. Maisol's work raises fundamental questions about how to know non-human beings and the political events they are involved in and how to write ethnographies about them. It is about the encounters and entanglements of indigenous and non-indigenous worlds and the difficulties and violence implied in translating meaning and events from one to the other. The monograph also raises questions about the conceptualization of politics. The idea behind the workshop was to create a space for open and collective thinking where the participants brought their ethnographic material to the table as point of departure to discuss its analysis. This form invited to a dialogue across ethnographic material and the different more than human actors it contained. What a more than human actor can be will be further explored during this episode, as it can show itself in the relationship to the subterraneans, as we will hear it exemplified later, or as the agency of tree spirits, or in the way that we can be enabled to interact with a dandelion, as you heard it playing in the beginning. By dwelling into three of the ethnographic cases presented at the workshop and the following discussions, this episode wished to show how anthropological knowledge is produced in similar form. This episode is built around the ethnographic material presented by PhD student Lars Römer, master student Esther Fritz and Professor Maisol de Lagadena. With these cases and the following discussions, we hope to offer you a deeper insight to what the theme More Than Human Politics is about. The episode will address questions like how can we understand and describe more than human beings and what challenges of translation emerge in this process? How can we conceptualize the political potentiality of more than human entities and does this lead to a rethinking of the political as such? And also, how can anthropology and ethnography engage with these more than human actors methodologically and how can these academic disciplines contribute to expand and examine this field? To introduce the format of the workshop, we will start with Stine and Estel's presentation. Among with welcoming the participants to the workshop, they also share their own interest in the field by presenting some of their ethnographic work. 
My name is Stine Kreuer and I'm based here at Copenhagen University in the Department of Anthropology. Astrid and I would like to welcome you all to this workshop. Uh, we have taken the opportunity of Astrid's close connection to Marisol de la Cadena to invite you here to Copenhagen. Basically, we organized this workshop because we are both interested in politics in the usual sense of the word, but also in the limits of the concept. That is how our usual definition of politics is changed when thinking and writing about other beings. Um, the workshop is inspired by uh, Marisol's recent monograph, Earth Beings, uh, dealing with an issue I think interests many of us, namely by addressing the multiple ways that non-human beings become political entities. I currently work with a, a research project called The Political Life of Trees, which is a kind of comparative project where I conduct fieldwork both in Germany, Ecuador, and during the UN climate talks. Across these fields, I have found that there are very different ideas about what a tree is and what it is capable of doing. For example, among the sequoia living in the Ecuadorian Amazon, trees are spirits or spirit beings called wati, capable of influencing human lives and affairs. Probably for this reason, a group of sequoia decided to clear cut their land simply to get rid of the, the agencies of, of these beings. Uh, and uh, as a result, they were fined by the Ministry of Environment for violating the rights of nature, uh, which is a set of rights put down in the Ecuadorian constitution. As described by Marisol in her book, uh, my research also raises questions about the political lives of non-human beings and how politics become uh, redefined in the process. And I think Astrid, who has become my partner in crime in this, uh, also have similar concerns in her work. Yes, I do. My name is Astrid Overborbeck Andersen. I'm working as a postdoc on an interdisciplinary research project called the NOW Project, Living Resources and Human Societies Around the North Water in the Thule area in Northwest Greenland. I did my PhD research in the city of Arequipa in Peru on water, water politics and climate change. And um, the string that goes through the work across these quite different fields is human environmental relations and ways that knowledge and politics or how politics and ways of knowing shape each other. And um, the kind of non-human beings that have been central in my work for the last years are water and water flows in the case of Peru, as well as the infrastructures and hydraulic technologies that are built to make water flow. In Northwest Greenland, the non-humans are animals that are hunted, marine mammals such as walrus, seal, and narwhal that enter in strong relations with humans and, and human livelihoods as food and materials for survival. Also seabirds such as little orcs or eider ducks. Other non-humans that work as agents in the Arctic landscapes are hunting tools, GPSs, kayaks, ice, and weather. I'm very interested in where the boundaries of something considered political are negotiated and drawn in different contexts 
and how this is connected to different ways of knowing and valuing the non-human elements we sometimes address as natural resources. We are envisioning a very informal format, and that is also why we have placed you around this table. We hope that we can create a kind of interesting academic conversation and also a new kind of dialogue across some of our different fields. So the idea is basically to open up dialogue rather than presenting finished arguments. We are extremely happy that you're all here and we are looking very, very much forward to our conversation. Now we will take you to my Sol de la Cadena, presenting some central points from her monograph at the workshop. Maisel describes how she, when working with the archive, met an excess that she did not know how to work with and perceive. This opens a further question about translation, which will be the central theme of the first part of this episode. So first, the tiny words, I mean, a tiny bit about my, the background to my book. So those of you who have read the book know that these started with a box of documents a box of documents that uh, these uh, very astute uh, indigenous politician and a collective of which he was a part had put together during many years, um, 50 years. And it is in this box of documents, what this box contained was documents that referred to a land struggle between a what to me was a group of peasants and the landlord. This box referred to what to me was a peasant struggle in the highlands, the high, high highlands of Cusco, Peru. So I said, I want a short research project. This is contained in this box. It's an archive that is contained that I don't, I won't have to go to the archive and look at disorganized catalogs, everything's there. Uh, and the person, the person that collected it is still alive. I can work on something like the ethnography of an archive. That was my first idea. And that was like five or six years before I started working with Mariano. Once I started working with Mariano, things fell apart in the sense that this wasn't an archive anymore. So it made me think, what is this? Right After a few weeks working with him, he said, there are things that are not here because they cannot be here. This was, I'm translating very quickly, and I'll go back to the idea of translation because this is where I want to go. Uh, these are things that the state could understand, but there were many more things that made these possible that the state could not understand. So do you want to hear that or not? And I, I said, okay, I want to hear that. And when I started hearing that, I didn't understand the word. What I mean is that I could understand in the terms of, in the usual terms of anthropology, in the very usual terms of anthropology, meaning, okay, so there is a belief in um, a spirit of the mountain. I couldn't figure out what I was hearing other than in those terms. And it took me a while to figure out what I was listening. And because I am not a Quechua speaker, a native Quechua speaker, and I was learning Quechua, and I realized as I was not understanding that my problem was not that I wasn't understanding the words, but that I wasn't understanding anything, that I decided to have a Quechua, a bilingual Quechua Spanish person translator with me all the time. 
And the way we translated was, we translated into Spanish, keeping the Quechua with us. So it was a translation into Spanish that did not change the words, it moved the words, but didn't move them that much. And I tried not to move the grammar so that I could get to something more than I could get when I was thinking in Spanish. So it all started with an issue of linguistic translation because with the usual linguistic translation, which was what I could get from knowing Quechua my way, that is through Spanish, I wasn't getting anything that wasn't already said, that anthropology and very old and traditional Andeanist anthropology had already said. And it's not that very old and traditional Andean anthropology is wrong, not at all. But I didn't want to say that because one, it had already been said, and I had this gut feeling that that wasn't what I was hearing. So this is to say that translation became a huge issue in my work, uh, something that I couldn't not think about all the time, and that the kind of issue that translation made, made present in my work was excess. That excess was going to be a constant presence in my relationship with Mariano and Nazario and my relationship with everything local. So my next question was, so what do I do with excess? What is excess? Uh, obviously, I cannot access excess, which means I cannot know it. So how do I relate analytically to excess? If I cannot know it, does that mean that I don't consider it in my analysis? So excess without knowing in our term. Okay, so that's one of the things that I wanted to say, and it all started with an archive. So going back to the archive, there was excess, and there was this very contained knowledge in the archive, something that I could read and I could understand. And of course, it had its own its own epistemic excesses, but those excesses were not the same as the other excesses. So those are the two things that underpin the book, an archive that contains excesses about it in its own epistemic terms and excesses that it doesn't know about. So what Maisel presents for us here is how she encountered the excess of the archive something she could not easily perceive or describe, which raised a problem of translation. This problem of translation was discussed further after master student Estel Fritsch's presentation of her ethnographic fieldwork in Damanor. Damanor is a community of eco-villages in Italy, with around 600 people, and it's the place where Esther recorded the dandelion that you heard playing in the beginning. Start. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about an eco-village in the north of Italy, uh, which is one of more than 600 eco-villages at the moment in an international network that is just expanding very quickly. Uh, we have more than 50 in Denmark now, just within the past two years, it really exploded. Mm -hmm. uh, and the eco-village I have visited is called Damanur, and it was founded just in the years after 68. And it is situated in the pre-Alp zone, and they live now around 600 people. They have their own laws and their own currency, and they live in 25 collectives that are distributed over an area of around 20 square kilometers. Uh, so they kind of mix with the conventional villages in the area as well. Uh, and the area is very green and full of these small conventional villages. And in Damanua, they experiment with the solar panels, building houses in trees, but also more magic technologies 
and agriculture. And this is what I have studied. Uh, and there has been and still is a lot of tensions between Damanur and the surrounding area because it's mostly a Catholic area and they are very, um, like they are imagined to be a cult. And also in academia, some sociologists have just published this book about converts from Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses and Damanur. So it's just to say something about the categorization there. And they have often been studied as a religion, even though they say we are really not a religion, we are researchers, mm -hmm. we live in a laboratory. So in my study, I have really tried to take that seriously, studying how they do research with growing eatable plants and how they exchange these plants with the people in the area to create partial connections, even though there are these gaps between Damanur and the people in the area and also how they try to affect the way people grow their vegetables to mm. grow organic instead of conventional vegetables. Mm. Yes. So what they really want to do in Damanur is to reunite the human and the plant world. They think these worlds have been separated because human beings didn't respect the plant world. And also they all have uh, plant and animal names, so they are called like uh, shark hemp or and coriander. And the animals have human names. So there is a cat called Virginia and a dog called Elsa. And this mixing of categories is for them really a way to create right. relations with other yeah. beings. And also when you enter a territory in Damanu, you greet the tree before you greet anybody else. So for five months, I have been growing plants in Damanur and I've been studying the experiments in the fields and the base is uh, no chemicals and also building this strong relation between the human and the plant. And to do this, they have invented a technology that can translate the electro signals from the plant into music because it's like building a bridge because we don't understand anymore so much the science of the plant directly, but if they are mediated through a technology, they can be translated into a language we, we understand better. And I'm just gonna play a 30 second video so you can hear it and actually get a sense of the atmosphere. Damanurian's way of being with plants <coughs> opens a window that has the potential to challenge subjectivity because working in the field, I really started feeling like I could kill plants. And I never felt that before. I felt ethically I had so many struggles at the end because I really started feeling if it's like you plant them and you follow them for many months and if you cut just one wrong place, they die. And I started uh, feeling it in my own body and I especially think that the constellation uh, plant-human technology really is very interesting for this because it's like, uh, it's like the tones that translates the science of the plant, they, they hit you in this bodily affective way and at the same time they speak to your rational technological mind. And I think it could just be very interesting to cooperate with designers of technology in these constellations of human-plant technology where it's actually the technology that is bringing us closer to the plant and not making us go further away. The people of Demonor have built a machine that brings forth the sound of the dandelion. 
Through this technology, humans are in a way enabled to sense the plants in another register. This theme brings us back to the subject of translation, which was also highlighted in my Sol's presentation. Esther's presentation addresses how can we communicate, understand and listen to an unfamiliar, more than human actor, and how can such experience be translated into ethnographic text? As it will soon be elaborated, Esther feels limited because she is unsure of how to write and translate her perceptions and experiences from the field. After Esther's presentation, Maisol and Morten Axel Pedersen, who is a professor at the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University, continue this discussion of translation and ethnographic writing. I feel like all the time when I'm trying to write about the plants, for instance, it's like they are already becoming something else in a way that I sometimes don't like. And I try to think, how can you, could you put sound into the thesis in some way, or can you put a sound track so you open it and it's sound coming instead of because as soon as you write it, it's something else mm. than the tones already. Uh -huh. And and I think that's just I feel limited in a way. Yeah, you know, yes, this is something that I was told when I was trying to understand what Bukhara was. Bukhara has traditionally been defined as a place where people that can connect with earth beings get their possibility, I'm translating, and I'll go back to that, get their possibility of communi communicating with earth beings. So I was asking what is Bukhara, and I... Of course, from Andeanist ethnography, I knew what Bukhara was. But I, in the usual anthropological practice, was trying to get from my informant what it was. And what he said was, Bukhara is Bukhara. <laughs> Whatever you're going to write is not going to be Bukhara. Hmm. Hmm. You're going to write what you think is Bukhara or what I tell you is Bukhara, but what I tell you is not Bukhara. What Bukhara is, is Bukhara. You cannot, re you cannot define it, because defining it is not what Bukhara is. For us, a definition represents the thing, and in that sense, is the thing. So writing the plant as music, you would have to write a score, perhaps, and that would not be the music of the plant. What if the question is the following? They were able to build a machine that translated the language of the plant into something they understood. That's also what you do when you write a doc. Yeah. You have to create a machine, a machine of uh, translation, beautiful. if That's you like. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no loss. You don't have to think that there's a loss. Yeah? You don't have to sort of like take as your starting point, there's something I can't put into words because... No, no. you know, words are, words are, have machine capabilities in the same way as their kind of machines have. Oh. Words are not, are not, are, are not kind of vehicles of, of some kind of loss towards some kind of world of immediateness. Or at least that's a very culturally specific idea that it should be so. And I would encourage you not to think about problem of ethnography in those terms as always a situation of loss. I'm yeah. talking about it as a situation in which you're aware that what you're writing is not exactly that, but that's the way in which you render it into ethnography. And that that situation, the not being able to render it, is productive in that it makes you write about it and write in a specific way. So that you're not lamenting, you're just stopping and saying, hey, this happened, and therefore I'm aware of the separation. 
but that separation, I, I would say, yes, it's not a loss. It's a moment of difference in which you make the ethnography different from the ethnography that thought was representing what the relationship between the machine, the music, and the plants were. Because that's, that is unique to machine, music, and plants. But you are able to render that in a way that's not exactly that, but that renders it. But I think that they are very uh, useful inputs. I completely follow what you say. It's very liberating to not see it as a limit. And still, there is something in me that becomes a bit like, with the words, I feel it's like we have to translate everything into words. And sometimes I just start wondering, mm. can we represent in another way? A take-home point to extract from this discussion is the importance of being very aware in the process of translation, particularly in the incompleteness of translation. As Maisol points out, when you translate, it is never a complete translation capturing the whole. As she says, a bugada is a bugada, and whatever this word is translated into will never be exactly a bugada. Therefore, translation is a moment of difference. However, as Morten explains, we as anthropologists should not take laws as a starting point when translating, but rather see our own anthropological writings as a machine translating the field into words. Another discussion emerging from Esther's presentation is how to talk about the categories that Esther presented as animals, plants and humans. When non-human beings are given names, distinct categories of life are intertwined. In the following, Maisal proposes a way to grasp these kinds of entities. Her point is here that the more-than-human actor needs to be defined and met not as more-than-human in opposition to human, but in their own terms. Okay, so one of the things that I'm a little bit concerned is that the difference that we're making between Earth beings and entities that are unlike earth beings. Translating, for example, earth beings into sacred is translating into, is moving into a different regime, right? Uh, into a different regime of being, into the regime usually occupied, at least since the 19th century, by religion. And that's something that I think we have to be very careful not to do, right? Like. We can talk about different kinds of entities without going through necessarily laboratories, without going initially necessarily through laboratories or through landscapes or through religion initially. And then as we continue, we can emerge in laboratories, in landscapes or, or in religion. But we don't start from religion so that we don't translate without translating, without being aware of translating. So it, 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 It is about, my anxiety is about being absolutely careful with every word that we think and write with. Esther's example is an example that we can all really look at to see how the categories that we, that the, the entities that we're looking at have to be named with the names that they emerge through relations that are not the ones that we're useful, used to. How can we think about other relations? Not necessarily conceptually, but very empirically, that is at the same time very conceptually. 
which is therefore very ethnographic. So what you have in your field, Esther, I think is something very complex, something very bold. They are mixing up categories of life. They are completely, they are welding in a very different way. And, and I think that you have to see that as welding in a different way, as welding where a cat is Victoria, but Victoria is not necessarily human, but is Victoria and is cat. So that also affects that human. So when, when you say more than human actress, I think that's something I would not say. I would say cat that is Victoria. Mm. That's not animal as in animal and human. And that is cat because Victoria is not human. So what Maisel is pointing to is that the cat should not be characterized by the dualism cat-human. Rather, the cat is a cat in its own way. As she puts it, a cat that is Victoria. It refuses translation and therefore we should stick to the original names. If this sounds confusing, the confusion makes a good point of the complexity of translation and understanding these entities. A point that Maisel empathizes here is that The entities have to be understood in the relation that they emerge in. Because it is in this interface that we might be able to perceive them and it is in this meeting that we should be able to recognize their being. In addition to this, she sheds lights on the importance of how we go about framing the entities. How we should be very aware of whether or how we frame an entity when trying to conceptualize it. Professor Morten Axel Pedersen, who we also heard in the discussion on effect following Esther's presentation, here continues the discussion about the more than human actor by referring to a theoretical approach called ANT, formulated by Bruno Latour. ANT means actor network theory, where the actor can be both human and non-human. Morten empathizes how Esther's example shows anthropology's contribution to the actor definition in ANT. In ANT, the actor is measured by its effect, but Morton argues how the actor can also be recognized through effect. Therefore, he presents that we might talk about more than human effectors instead of actors. Morton here points to the use of oneself as research instrument when studying more than human politics. The entities might have an effectual effect on you, as Esther described, and these effects can be used in the research process. Uh, this was in the context of your paper, Esther. When people say something clearly coming from ANT, this context, more than human actors. So you describe all these different kinds of phenomena that your interlocutors clearly engage with. You even were affected by suddenly feeling sorry or guilty about eating a plant as if it was a consequence of an act of killing. And of course, that is in itself a perfect example of a conceptual reinvention. That is to say, the whole point of the Latourian actors is that they're not the, the kinds of actors that the way we used to think about them, because they're actors that do not necessarily have intentionality. The truest concept of the actor comprises intentional and non-intentional actors. Hence, it's an invention on the concept of actor that uses sort of map directly onto intentional. 
form. Yeah? But then my question coming out of your material, but is that it, it seems purely sort of inadequate to speak about what you are talking about as a more than human actor. I mean, it's not that it's wrong, but it just doesn't seem precise enough, or you might even say evocative enough. And particularly, I don't think it conveys uh, the sort of ethics and the feelings and the sort of desire of this kind of encounter. So there's just something about the actor and it's kind of uh, the way actor is defined as you, you measure in terms of its effects that seem to somehow fully capture that this is actually a sort of ethical formation and it's a place where people have desires and feelings and, and that your feelings are intensified in particular kind of ways. I mean, might one not actually instead talk about more than human affectors, you know, affects that you have to work on whether you cannot do something that would be going from actor to affect, from effect to affect, to convey what seems to be the central aspect of your material, namely the ethical self-cultivation that takes place for you and others among your informants in doing these particular kind of practices in and around trees, vegetable, plants. Uh, and Spolish may even be better equipped than STS scholars in doing this kind of stuff because of the nature in which we conduct our research in comparison to many STS scholars. Namely that you can actually here go and analyze what actually happens to yourself. The fact that you use yourself as an instrument of your research, these aspects have happened to you. You are not just observing effects, you are experiencing effects. And I think that should be highlighted, not just in your kind of study, but in the anthropology of these kind of phenomena as well. I think that's where our contribution lies in our complementarity uh, to strictly ANT, STSE kind of approach. A returning reflection during the workshop was the consideration about why this more-than-human field is occurring in anthropology now. Maisalde Lakadena, Stine Kroyer and Lars Rømer, another participant at the workshop, shared their thoughts about this. Lars Rømer is a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at University of Copenhagen. I am completely excited. And I think that one of the things that we might want to reflect upon is why is it that we're talking about these now? Uh, something's happening. I think the modern world has produced problems for which it ha doesn't have modern solutions. It's not a coincidence that we start talking about this at this historical moment in time in different places in the world and in different ways. And I think in that sense also the languages and the ways people are trying to start talking about something maybe they had talked about before in a different way and now start to talk about again in a different way and find technologies in different ways of trying to develop a language to address some of these issues. You know, trying to make music off the plans and trying to just struggling along with how to find ways of talking about something which is mm. quite difficult. Yeah, I could add on because the, the, like, yeah. I've been spending quite a bit of time with amateur archaeologists who use yeah. metal detectors yeah. for accessing yeah. the past and that whole the way they talk about how gold sound in a specific way that makes yeah. them feel is very quite interesting to learn how to sort of hear the past in a sense yeah. or hear the soil or look at the landscape, the colors and share that same sense that technologies are, at least in some of these cases, creating some really intimate connections between either human or nature or the present and the past, where, where they are sort of really become great tools for some sort of engagements. What Lars and Stine are reflecting on is the ability to listen to something that we have not always been able to listen to. Maisel presents the problem that modernity has created problems that modernity cannot solve. 
and therefore we need to start listening in a new way. Continuing the workshop, Astrid Orbebeck Andersen introduces Lars Rømer, who presents his ethnographic work on the Danish island Bornholm. His case raises a question about what constitutes a more-than-human political field, and it tells the story about how studying more-than-human actors can give rise to political controversies. For instance, issues surrounding research priorities and the funding of research in Denmark. We will move on mm-hmm. to the next presenter, and we will come back to the points raised. Um, last. We will go to Bonhomme. Public ridicule and private confessions. Notes on non-human aspects of Bonhomme's landscape. Okay, my name is Lars Romer. I'm uh, enrolled here at the department as a PhD student and, and employed by the Royal Library, the Danish Folk Archives. That's a long title. And I'm, I'm currently sort of halfway through my field work on Bornholm, the Danish island, where I'm, I, I departed from like looking at legends and myths about a subterranean kind of being mm-hmm. on the island as a way to sort of get a deeper understanding of how people have related to that landscape both presently and historically. There's a particular type of legend on Bornholm about a sort of yeah, natural being called subterraneans. For Nordisk in Danish, undergrounders, I'm not sure what like subterraneans has been my translation of it. Mm-hmm. It fits perhaps more like the type of pixie uh, that lives underground. And after a couple of years of thinking about how could I do that, I sort of ended up thinking, well this this subterranean being, because it's not only legends in the past, like I've seen it, they pop up every now and then on the contemporary island, like the tourist agencies, the museum museum, and in different ways, also as a sort of a marketing figure for selling ice cream and whatever, uh, a popularized version. I was thinking oh, that might be sort of a, at least a different way to approach the Bornholm's nature and Bornholm's landscape than it would otherwise uh, mm-hmm. come about. So I set aside sort of well, okay, the legends, the subterraneans, that will be my sort of point of entry. That's where we'll start uh, approaching uh, Bornholm as a field. Also, I'm quite happy about sort of that idea. I liked it, and I was really pleased when, like, in the fall of 2014, learned that uh, I got a grant from the Independent Research Councils in Denmark. I was like, yeah, wow, that's great. And what I, what I hadn't imagined was that how this sort of might bring about a, a, a vast controversy in the sense about how 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 was this? Like, I mean, the, the well, he's now the former minister of science and research in Denmark, Ismund Larsen, but he was one of the frontmost critics of my project. So, like, a few weeks after this was published, he was went out and said, "Well, this is uh, absolutely out of touch with Denmark's need as a society. How can we, like, if the research councils in Denmark have have money to spend on a project like?" have a m- money to spend on a project like this, it sh- certainly shows that they have too much money and can't administer their funding. So we, we have to do... It's your fault. Yeah, it is. I, I think it's my fault that, like... And I, and I, I, it's a heavy burden to... We're all suffering because... Yeah, I know, and I'm, I'm deeply sorry. Uh, I'm not sure I wish I would have done differently, but uh, but he was out there, and, 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 and that ridicule is sort of like that. Uh, he was sort of... You can do that. Uh, well, people... I don't know where it came from, but he was sort of... Well, people are allowed to hug trees, but in their spare time, this is not something that should be the object for right. serious like right. science. This is not right. science. Mm. Right. And it fits perfectly with it, the whole tradition of sort of saying Western societies for the, for the church and science to attempt to undermine local beliefs and local folklore and try to eradicate that from sort of the public mainstream versions of what is 
I mean, allowed to be believed. Um, and I think or I, to be. Yeah, or to be, or whatever, whatever is sort of is is rel as a relevant thing to talk about, and that critique, that ridicule, that I've had to defend myself in in newspapers and across the globe, in sense, has been from you know Russia to Argentine that I've had requests from from media, Cambodian, whatever, <laughs> wow. that was put interested in how can Denmark fund such a project, and I'm curious. At one point, I'm curious about this. Would it have been the same if this project was about you know spirits in Mongolia or Andean spirits? Probably not, because there's a tendency to, at least that's my personal view, that like these types of spirits, they belong either in the past or somewhere else, mm -hmm. not in our backyard. Or in the present, it's still in the past. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, and and, um, and this is what I've made new, like beginning fieldwork on Bonham, and I'm living there at the moment, probably continue living there, because uh, it's a great place. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but when I meet people, for the first time, it will sort of be oh, oh, you're that guy with the subterraneans. Oh, oh, there's the oh, oh, there's the sorcerer. Ah, how can you, uh -huh. how can you, like, how can you even do something? Like, how can you take this seriously? How can this be? How can, is this your job? Uh, and and which has been a very sort of methodologically challenging, obviously, to to be faced with the immediate critique. Lars's case sparks a discussion about what is political, and whether we can conceptualize the political, or if we should rather redefine the concept of politics itself. In this discussion, Morten reflects on the limits of the political as political limit points. One of the good things about things as a concept uh, is precisely that, you know, as Paul Bright and others have written about, that it has this peculiar sort of generic, almost empty character that might actually be quite helpful, you know, uh, because it, it, it's kind of open in a graphic question what a thing can be, you know? not necessarily something that is material, etc. Likewise, here you could say the same thing about politics. You know? So, how can we ask the question in such a way that uh, the concept of politics remains as heuristic as possible? You know? So the question is like, what do we need to do to politics in order to understand, make sense of, better analyze a number of, of different kind of scenarios? Should we stay always with the concept of trying to find politics else, everywhere, or, or should we actually rather try to reinvent something else? You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there might also be, it might actually point to some kind of limit point. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. and it's not because, of course, the concept can be sort of reinvented into anything, but is it actually useful? You know, it might be, as you also sort of, I think, allude to, sort of, maybe there are a sort of stoppage point where it's, it sort of indicates that we need to do, start doing some other kind of conceptual work. Mm. Now that we have done these, all these necessary things about expanding the concept of politics to a lot of domains, which was really analytically and otherwise necessary, it's also interesting to ask, is there a kind of limit to it and what's the mm. indications of mm. doing that and so on? And of course, as Mary Sullivan says, well, it, it, Maybe there is no limit because, of course, it depends on whether the, the, the thing of politics itself is one that that can travel, if you like. That is to say, whether the the, the, the well, rather actually whether the concept of politics is not a definition, but it's a concept of politics that can change from itself, mm. if you like, mm. Uh, mm. as it travels. Yeah? So as long as it, 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 it can accomplish that, there's no particular kind of uh, you know stoppage point at all. Yeah? It doesn't mean there's not other kinds of uh, definitions of concepts of politics right. are not extremely right. relevant, mm. but maybe this is the one that has, po 
that methodological politics is about. Mm-hmm. And psychological mm-hmm. politics is doing is examining the mm-hmm. limit. That doesn't mean that we are we, we cannot be engaged in other kinds of politics as well as anthropology, mm-hmm. but maybe that is not actually what anthropology is particularly good at. Yeah. What anthropology could be particularly good at is that examination of the limit. Morden asks if we, by examining the limits of the political, can elucidate the concept of the political itself. In relation to more than human politics, he reflects on whether we should seek the political or if we should seek to reconceptualize what is political. Morden points to how in conceptualizing politics, the concept itself should remain open for reinterpretation and configuration. This might sound paradoxical, but basically this means that the concept of politics is a temporal concept that should take form in relation to the context in which it is situated. As Morden argues, when working with the concepts, there should be a scope for maneuvering. The concept should be able to move with its contextual framing. So in relation to Lars's work, it is interesting to note how his field shows its political limits in the encounter between Lars's project and the minister's perception of academic relevance. The minister judges Lars's project as irrelevant and thereby the public debate itself comes to illustrate the limits of the political. But you might ask, what is the meaning of relevance? I am also very sick of thinking that the only relevant research is a research that has some political relevance. (laughs) And I think that um, for me, what has political relevance now, and I like to practice that, is thinking at my limit, pushing the concepts to their limit, and think what that limit offers me like the clue to how how anthropologically political your concept was was when the minister threw the fit. When that guy said, how can we spend money on these? That's exactly the moment in which the dart was thrown to show the political relevance of your work. Mm. (laughs) I mean, this is impossible. Mm. It is very important because it's so impossible in your mind. Uh, And then the other thing is that this limit of concept, what I like about working on the limits of of concepts is that you don't need the earth being. You you don't need the weird. It's just made weird because it's indicating a limit. That's what makes it weird, because it indicates a limit. It's not pre-weird. <laughs> it doesn't pre-exist its weirdness. It is when the limit, pop, takes you to the door where you all of a sudden are unable to handle. And that is where the weird appears. Because I didn't like envision my project at all as something that was politically in nature but but that sort of yes. rupture or yes. whole disagreement across sort of the globe right. i think is perhaps because of the sort of incoherency in that in terms of modern politics or what's politically right, acceptable exactly. that yeah. and where, where i've sort of like that was by i think if i would have given myself an advice beforehand it was to be thinking about that as you say more than the 
the anthropological political aspect of my work rather than thinking of it in terms of a sort of fi fixed relevance. Exactly. And, and then, exactly. Uh, which is where I've almost been surprised by myself how relevant it actually is yeah. in terms of how much discussion it has generated. Exactly. So there's something there that has like spurred an interest which uh, I'm not at all in any point of time going to be done with exploring. But that's for me, that's really the exciting part of the... Uh, Again, maybe what anthropologists are good at, actually, maybe what universities are good at, is precisely about expanding what relevance is, rather than being relevant. Mm. Yeah? Mm. So, you know, uh, universities are places where you redefine relevance, rather than where you are relevant. So... My... My intuition is that the state, in whatever impersonation, the state has very difficult time dealing with these. The minister, who couldn't deal with it at all, right? But the funny thing that I really think is important is that on not dealing with it, they are dealing with it. Mm -hmm. and, and that is something that I don't think we had ears before to be aware of that ears or hands or eyes to see it. In the workshop, myself proposed a concrete way to approach the field of more than human politics, namely by working on how we methodologically and theoretically understand our anthropological approach. She presents what she calls methods as unusual, proposing that we understand method not as in how we collect material in the field, but as tools to think. By merging the theoretical and the empirical, we are better disposed to practice a more coherent approach in anthropological research. Maisal reflects on this more, with Dina Koya adding to this discussion. I want to tell you about how I think about methods and concepts. Last year, I organized a workshop in uh, Davis. I named it Methods as Unusual. So what I wanted to do in that was to think about methods in a non-representational way, if, if you want, and if I want to use the current way of speaking. So methods not as that with which we collect material in the field, but methods as analytical tools, as tools to think. And in that vein, to think about concepts as methods. And to think about, to think collapsing, completely collapsing the separation that we have been trained with between the empirical and the theoretical. Thinking about concepts as methods, aka as tools to think, for a very specific genre, uh, and that is ethnography, which is, I, I say it's very specific genre because I, along with many others, define it as that seamless composition between the empirical, what we call the empirical, and what we call the theoretical, 
through the conceptual. So that once we put it together, it is very difficult to pull what we call the empirical apart from what we call the theoretical. So with these, I wanted to alter the usual methods class in anthropology departments uh, and the usual theory classes in anthropology departments, uh, whereby we separate mm -hmm. both, mm -hmm. right? And we teach methods as methodology, mm -hmm. uh, and it is you, I mean, everything we do when we are in the field, and then what we do when we are writing is something else. If we start there, and perhaps, I don't know, it depends, and this is where we have to be very ethnographic, conceptually, methodologically. As we emerge in the place where we're thinking, and by that I mean the field in front of our computers, uh, then we can start thinking about how that assemblage is separated depending on where it is emerging because that place is making, it, is making that separation. And, but what I wanted to say also is that once said that, I think that one of the things that I would, that I do very deeply want to keep is the un, unevenness of what we're listening to. So if we're, we're listening, we, listen, we, we hear uneven things, I think that that is what we want to keep. We don't want to interpret them in a way that then homogenizes. So, a point that Maisel makes and that we can take with us from this episode of Entropod is about being aware of not harmonizing what we hear in the field. This draws back to the discussion about translation and the importance of being very aware in the process working within this field. Stini brings forth reflections on how we engage with the field that we study and how ethnographic studies are a mutual relation where things and knowledge flow back and forth. Thereby, she starts a discussion on how the point of departure of ethnographic work is a relation. The work itself is an interface between the ethnographer and the field. As a closing remark, Morton sums up some of the discussions held by marking that we need to be aware of never providing ontological answers. Instead, we need to continuously ask ontological questions and, like Maisel says, never harmonize the answers. But then again, well, <laughs> maybe think about thinking about the relevance of, of of anthropology. Coming back to your to your issue about uh, what what we consider and what uh, what you also said, what we consider anthropological politics. Yes. What is it actually that is yes. our <laughs> our labor and our work of politics might not be uh, to be. Uh, political in the same way as the people that we study, but uh, being it in a, in a different sense and, mm. and being it in a way that uh, thinking beyond the limit of what we are <laughs> capable of. But then, on the other hand, I don't think that that we can distinguish so clearly again between uh -huh. who's Who's, who is it actually who's thinking beyond the limit and who is doing anthropological politics? Because on the other hand, we could also say, well, uh, even the work of 
ontologists flow back into the people that we are studying. Uh, Amazonians are reading Vivedus de Castro, and so are my uh, German activists, and they are using it in a new way to also start thinking beyond themselves. Uh, um, so in that sense, it might not be so clear cut who is actually doing the intellectual labor uh, or, or doing mm -hmm. the thinking beyond, uh, mm -hmm. because the the domains again are maybe not. But should yeah. it be clear? No, I don't mm -hmm. think so. It's us, us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's all the time us. In uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and that's the other thing also that, in terms of method concept, mm -hmm. I think that it is a trap to think us, them. Mm. I'd rather think here in the interface where we encounter each other and think about us interface. Yeah. Not us, them, but us interface. Because every method is underpinned by a concept. So if you say, me, Marisol, they, Mariana and Nazario, I'm doing a kind of ethnography that won't allow that seamless composition of the empirical and the theoretical through the conceptualization. Already that, me, them, will take me to something else. Yeah. So I prefer to talk about us interface. It's a, of course it's an interface that has the as them, but it's a as them, <laughs> not mm. as space them. As mm -hmm. It is as them. Mm -hmm. Do anthropology always involves asking ontological questions, mm -hmm. but never taking ontology mm -hmm. as an answer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That is precisely. Mm -hmm. That is precisely mm -hmm. what it's all about. That is what anthropology is about. Uh, yeah. You cannot avoid those questions, mm -hmm. and that's why we can't just pretend that we're not dealing with ontological questions. Mm -hmm. But we should never provide an ontological answer. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, just really repeating what you said is a is a, a particular f a seamless integration uh, or weaving together or stitching together of uh, what we might uh, call the theoretical and the ethnographic. You know, so I thought that was really nice, and I also really like this. Uh, we already talked about this idea of, of uh, thinking about method, thinking about what I just talked about in terms about before about concepts uh, as, as, as methodological invitations, invitations to also uh, rethink the relationship between method and theory, also in didactic terms, that is to say, do we actually teach them in a proper, in, in a way that's in accordance to these kind of uh, insights? Uh, certainly in this department I do not think we do, and interestingly, more or less, with the precise words that you have you said it today, Marisol, I and others have, 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 you know, for several years tried to sort of like ask, can we sort of try to revamp our uh, methodology classes uh, in this department so we don't always think about methodology as something you do in the field, but also what you do when you analyze, you know. But maybe we are also coming to our limit. <laughs> Saturation. We hope this episode has provided you with an insight into some of these very exciting discussions surrounding the study of non-human beings in anthropology. 
A special thanks to my Saltelaka dinner and all the participants at the workshop, especially Esther, Morten and Lars, whose work and comments were featured in this episode. This episode was produced by Astrid Oberbobek Andersen and Stine Kreuer. Sound and editing was done by Katrine Andrea Vinto and Cecil Marie Henriksen, students at the Department of Anthropology on University of Copenhagen. We also would like to thank the Danish Research Council for independent research for financing the workshop and the Department of Anthropology at University of Copenhagen for its support in hosting and producing this episode. For more information about this episode or to explore other Anthropod episodes, visit cultanth.org. There you can find links to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. You can also keep updated by following Anthropod on Twitter or liking Cultural Anthropology on Facebook. I'm Katrine Vinto and thank you for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. It was great. It was great. I, 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 I told you that I thought I was going to learn and I learned a lot. Thanks. And it's a great group. I really love it. Come visit. Come to Davis. We have great weather. It is great. So thank you, organizers. Thank you, organizers. You've been listening to Anthropod, produced by the Society for Cultural Anthropology in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Our co-sponsor, the AAA, will be holding its annual meeting in Washington, D.C. this year, from November 29th to December 3rd. The Anthropod team will be holding our own workshop at this year's meeting on November 30th from 1 to 3 p.m. In the workshop, entitled Podcasting 101, We'll work with participants on basic podcasting techniques and introduce what it takes to make an episode. You can register online by visiting AmericanAnthro.org and clicking the link for the annual meeting workshops. We hope to see you there.